Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is episode number 45, and this is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bow. And today we have the amazing honor to sit down with two brilliant individuals. Uh, one of them is a friend of mine from Venezuela. Her name is Alexandra Arriaga. Uh, she currently works at the College of Global Public he Health in New York University, NYU. And her expertise is in clinical and translational research. And her main interest is Latin American health. She's worked with the NIH and the Central American Healthcare Initiative, uh, where she created a system to standardize and disseminate best practices in the region. Uh, and she's just an all-around badass and really intelligent well-spoken girl uh, and Janae Moody is our other guest she also has her master's in public health with a concentration in global health from NYU that's where they know each other and I got connected to Janae from Alex uh, she was a fellow at the CDC the Center for Disease Control and Prevention working with the National Center for Emergent Zoonotic and Infectious Diseases within the rabies team she's done global work with West Central Africa's UNICEF office on maternal and child health and international assignments in London for urban health and Lebanon on behavior change interventions when managing disease outbreaks in the Middle East. And she combines all of these experiences in conjunction with the background that she has in psychology from the University of Florida. She's actually, uh, did she say she was born here in, in Florida? Well, whatever. She, sure. she grew up in Florida. Um, and so they're, they're both really passionate in health system strengthening and behavior change interventions to improve health outcomes at the population level. Uh, today, we wanted to actually touch on, on COVID, but we, we ran out of time. The conversation was, was really good. Uh, we talked about systemic racism, how we got there. We talk about the argument for police reform and why black on black crime is not really a thing. Talk about racism in healthcare. We talk about the economic gap and the multiple layers that have led to uh, the current racism problems that we are experiencing today. Uh, and we are we also talk about a brief comparison of the U.S. versus Latin American beliefs on racial inequality and how you can better educate yourself about the complexities and nuances of racial tensions, both as a person, as uh, an American citizen and as a foreigner. Uh, I also think this is a good time. I don't think we've said this publicly, but thank you to everybody who bought one of our black on black design strength is for everyone shirts. Uh, you helped us raise $10,000 for the NAACP uh, national defense fund. So thank you very much for that. Uh, it's great to be able to help make uh, an impact in whatever small way we can. So we appreciate you guys. Uh, this podcast is also brought to you by go strong equipment. Uh, obviously they're the best. We all know they're the best at this point, but, uh, right now, uh, business is going so well for them that they actually aren't taking on any more orders. They're, they're totally backed up. So in the interim, they're also doing, uh, some really great stuff on their apparel side. Um, they just recently did a, an anti-racism shirt, uh, to, to raise money for, I'm not sure what the exact organization was, but, uh, it's in support of, uh, the, the whole, the whole black lives matter movement that's going on right now. So definitely check them out. Uh, you can find them at gostrongequipment.com and go strong equipment on Instagram. Yep. Hope you guys enjoy this podcast it was super interesting. 
What I do want to focus on during our conversation today is uh, racism, even though it's a really uncomfortable and sensitive and emotionally charged topic. I do think that it's important uh, that we address it and that we talk about it and that we educate each other as best as possible. You know, I um, there's just so much that I think people don't understand, including myself, about how we got to where we are right now. And a lot of it has to do with at least on my end. And Alex, I think you can also agree on that, that um, upbringing plays a huge, a huge role on how you see the world and how you understand cultural differences. And so, you know, I wanted to just start a conversation to honestly, like selfishly to educate myself a little bit more about what people in the U.S. have been How has it been growing up here as a black woman? What kind of uh, injustices have you lived? Um, what do you see? What do you see changing currently? Is this the are we taking the right route? Um, Where could we do better? Yeah. All that stuff. Well, let's start <laughs> off. Let's, let's start off uh, small. Where yeah. do you want to start? Let's let's just talk about let's just let's talk about systemic racism and how we got here. So I think that one of the things that is the biggest misnomer around racism is so many people think that it's individual to individual. So it's just a posture of the heart. When in actuality it's really so much more deeper than that, and you have to actually look at the historical context. A lot of times people just think it goes from slavery to segregation and then it goes to normal life, which is what we're living now which is basically it's not more overt racism, it's more covert. So sometimes it's hard to put your finger on, you know, the racist act that's happening. But in reality, a lot of times I tell people, like even my own friends and like within my own social networks, to look back at around the early 1900s, around like 1934, when redlining was created. Um, redlining was something that President Franklin D. Roosevelt created in order to basically help stimulate wealth in the country through housing. And they built these residential security maps that divided each major cities across America by economic level, as well as housing, um, housing potential, business potential, but then race and ethnicity. And so one of the biggest things that came out of that was that Places that would become the future corporate America where it deemed the green area, so the best areas, and they received the most federal backing, and then areas that had what they called Negroes and foreign-borns, which would be immigrants and Blacks in modern-day terms, they did not deem them eligible at all for any federal funding. And so in those areas, they actually never got the opportunity to build wealth, to build infrastructure, even grocery stores strategically place themselves outside of those areas. And so when you look at modern day America and you talk about how, you know, in minority populations, you see higher incidence of obesity or a higher incidence of hypertension and diabetes, That's actually tied to the fact that back in the early 1900s, they strategically did not like invest in minority communities. And so even now they don't have access to healthy eating in the same way. If you want to talk about um, when it comes to crime, um, one of the things that I really like to focus on when it comes to systemic racism is that a lot of times they focus on the fact that it's the behavior of the black person. Um, and that is why that they are facing these disparities. But in the reality, it's that it's a lack of access to opportunities. 
And so one of the best examples I use always is black on black crime and black on black crime is not a thing. And reality, um, we're still living in a racially segregated land. And in reality, it's because even though segregation was found illegal because of things like redlining, we still grouped people based off of similar ethnic and racial backgrounds. So even now you see super predominantly white areas, super predominantly black areas. And because of that, when you see crime rates, you're going to see that people are usually engaged in crime of someone of the same race as them. So it's not just blacks, you know, doing crimes against blacks. It's also, you know, Hispanic on Hispanic, white on white. And it's not something that should be like villainized or vilified. That's a reality of a lot of times when crime happens, it happens close to home and you're living amongst people that look like you. And then also the other thing is it has nothing to do with the race. It has everything to do with economic opportunities. And throughout our history, blacks have been given a disadvantage when it comes to building wealth. And so when it comes to economic opportunities, you will see that there are a large amount of minorities that are low income and crime is a symptom of not having, you know, economic opportunity. And so people do what they need to in order to survive. And so I think that that's something that I really like to point out when I talk about systemic racism is it has nothing to do just with police brutality. It has nothing to do with just like, how are you treating the people around you? You know, are your friends diverse? Even though these are important topics, it has things to do with education outcomes, with building wealth. It has to do with safety. It has to do with healthcare. And it has to do with so many other aspects of your quality of life. And so a lot of times, you know, the racism isn't necessarily happening at the individual level. It's happening at the policy level or it's happening through racial profiling that are, you know, ostracizing a certain group of America and making it more um, difficult for them to, you know, rise and change their outcomes compared to other groups that um, are at a different starting line. Yeah. I, uh... So something that I wanted to point out real quick is that for those that are not familiar with the term of redlining, something that is mm -hmm. a very visual explanation is that if you see a map, then the red line would just be, what you would draw at the outskirts of that specific area where there's this systemic denial of services. There's like this systemic oppression or lack of things that should be readily available to a population based on race, ethnicity, uh, country of origin, etc. Yeah, uh, that, that makes perfect sense. And it's good to have a visual uh, representation of that too. Um, what I wanted to follow up on is because you, you mentioned something interesting uh, in, in that uh, a lot of times society pins, you know, crime rates and, and that sort of thing on the behavior of the black person. And um, I'm sure you hear this argument a lot because I, I myself have heard a lot. And it's that um, they say or I've heard people say certain cultures, they either glorify or value, you know, certain things more so than other cultures. And they'll use like rap music as an example and say, you know, that that the black community in, in some ways glorifies, you know, violence, drugs, promiscuity, things like that. And I've never personally subscribed to the belief because, you know, I played Grand Theft Auto growing up, you know, and I was a white character in Grand Theft Auto. And, I, I you know, I'm not running around stealing cars in Miami, but um, 
I, I would love to hear your opinion on that and just how cultural values play into it. And if, if there's any legitimacy to an argument like that, or, or if there's not. Yes. So that's actually a good question. I've never been asked before, but I think something that's important to remember is that oftentimes what I find is that we start to typecast. And when I say we, I'm not talking about me and you, but like society begins to typecast people in order to support their argument. So like, even when I was talking about, for instance, the misnomer of using the term black on black crime, it's, you know, people are trying to emphasize that this exists specifically within the black community, but it doesn't exist within other communities. You know what I mean? And I think it's actually the same thing when you talk about rap music, not all rap music um, does use those terms, but also I think that it's important to remember that a lot of times when you even go through the um, the history of some of the individual rappers, they do start off as like, you know, on a low income and then they rise into these wealthy roles. And so sometimes, as I said before, crime and criminal activity and, um, you know, violence and, you know, drug trafficking, um, it's, it is disproportionately charged and has longer term um, sentencings for black people, but also, you know, this is really a product of, you know, poverty is trying to gain economic opportunities. And so some of these people, not everyone has been in an environment where that was a way in order to change your life outcomes. You know what I mean? But I would say that if you look across rap, across all races, and you see even white rappers or, you know, Hispanic rappers and so many other different backgrounds, they're all singing similar things. And um, a lot of times, rap itself is based off of life experience and also what is trendy at the time. And so you're even finding now that things that people were saying in hindsight is no longer, you know, appropriate or being accepted now. And like, even though I don't support cancel culture, but like people are starting to, you know, assess some of the lyrics that, you know, certain rappers are saying and saying like, this is really, you know, something that, I don't align with. And similarly, I think, you know, when you really want to talk about cultural things, a lot of times you would have to go into individual ethnicities. Um, Blacks, just like, you know, the Latinx community and the white community, like, we're not a monolith. And so some people, you know, like Burn Boy, he is African and he's not, you know, American, but like, that is a certain type of music that, like, my friends specifically from Africa, it aligns more with their cultural background in music. And then I'm of Jamaican descent, and so when I hear reggae music, I enjoy it so much, and I feel like that's something that's more representative of my, um, of my like, cultural background compared to, you know, rap music, which I think is more experiential. Um, and, you know, it really does change things based off the rapper. With that being said, I would say that if you look at other aspects of the industry, if you don't just look at, you know, music, um, you can even look at, you know, certain movies or like you said, video games and different things are glorified. But the difference is that we're not, you know, assigning them and like, you know, identifying them to a race. Yes, rap music has um, African origins and has, you know, ties to rhythm and blues and um, soul music. Um, especially with the type of like beats and patterns used, but at the same time, I would say that very much diverge and does become more Americanized and, um, and unique to the different communities that they come out of. And so like, for instance, a lot of times when you hear a rapper from the Bronx or from Miami, 
people from there are able to identify a lot of the things that they're talking about better. Sure. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And I love the point you made about it being more of an economic uh, issue than, than a race issue. That's actually something that, yeah. I, that I have always said and kind of got uh, resistance on. So it's nice to hear you say something similar. Yeah, it's um, I guess it, it, it makes total sense and it not justifies, but I guess a lot of the reasons why I, I just wasn't understanding the Instagram dialogue was because I didn't think that. I honestly didn't think that those types of conversations were productive, especially with like the whole cancel culture, because what we need is reform at the policy level and we need changes to happen. Right. Like we need the government to intervene and actually, like you said, provide equal opportunity for for everyone or or find out. I don't know. I don't know what the solution would be, but find a way to to equalize the, the playing ground as much as possible. And yeah, you're right. Like, obviously, I do think that racism exists to a certain extent, you know, in the day to day, but it's not the biggest issue here. I agree. I mean, well, I think that I, it's just that it's been, it's almost like I wish there was a separate term for the type of like institutionalized racism. Racism is just adding a descriptor to racism, but it really is something so much deeper mm -hmm. and so much more layered than just the individual to individual, like individual to individual, you can just have a bad day versus exactly. institutionalized racism can literally change your, the trajectory of your life. And so I think that that's really the biggest issue that I find with just the term itself. Yeah. Absolutely. Can we talk briefly about cancel culture? I, I would actually love for you to start this topic off with telling your near death experience with cancer, uh, no, no, cancel cancer culture. culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want to say, talk about it? What because, part? Well, just, uh, yeah, you almost got canceled. Just when, when, <laughs> no. when, when you said a certain phrase that, that you didn't understand the social connotation. So, yeah. And I guess it's, it's a good point to bring a, a, a good time to bring up culture. Like where I, where I grew up. So I grew up in a place where honestly, like this type of racism didn't exist. Like I never thought about someone based on their color ever. Like living in Venezuela, it wasn't like black, white. Like it was just, we're all just kind of Hispanics and everyone is a Hispanic. You're a Hispanic white, you're a Hispanic black, you're a Hispanic Jew. I, I recognize every, or I identify with everyone based on the fact that we're all from the same country and that we're all from the same, um, like ethnicity or not ethnicity. What would you call like it? Socioeconomic so, background? No, 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 no. That we're all like just Latin people. Like okay. I don't, I don't, I didn't see. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that would be your ethnicity because it's not based on race, but more so origin. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So moving to the U S you know, I culturally, had to learn a lot of things, including the interactions between white and black people. And so what I, the way I like to explain it to a lot of people is I'm 28 years old, but culturally in the U S I'm 10 years old. Like that's how long I've been here. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm ignorant or that I'm naive or that I'm dumb or that I am stuck in my own ways. It just means that I've, lived in this country for 10 years and it's going to take me a little while to understand all the cultural nuances that occur in this country. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell this story, which I'm, it's, it's awful. Like it's like one of my most, <laughs> um, shameful moments of my life. So I had one of my best friends in honor. innocently though, innocently. Absolutely. 
one of my best friends in undergrad, his name's JT, was JT during that time when he was my best friend. He's not anymore. Um, and we would do everything together. We were, you know, we were back and forth. We would study together. He would come to my place. We would go party. Like he was, we were awesome together. And one day uh, we got out of a test and he comes out and I'm like, what's up? My D N word. And he's like, what did he just, just say? And I'm like, what do you mean? We're done. And left. And I'm like, oh my, what did I do? Like, I have no idea what just happened. Like, I thought I was just being friendly. Like, genuinely had no idea what, what why he was so upset. And he sat down. He was kind enough to sit down to me and explained everything. Like, what the origin of the word was. What it was used for. Why it's not appropriate for people to use it. In a very calm and respectful way, which I appreciated, right? Like, I genuinely wasn't coming from a bad place and he was able to see that. And that's why he, he took his time and like explained it to me. But And you were also culturally three years old or two? At two one, I think. I think it was my <laughs> first year of college. Yeah, so you had no idea. I had no idea. It was horrible. You're really, fresh off the boat. Honestly, traumatizing. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> just to give you some context, we come from a country where if you're listening to like reggaeton music or things like that, you will hear words like that of course and obviously we don't have the historical context we don't know the origins of it so when you come to the u.s you have absolutely no idea that it's completely inappropriate for you to say like right now at the point at the amount of knowledge i've gathered i don't even say that word if i have to refer to it i'll just say like n-word and that's it right um and i've learned that it's completely inappropriate for me to say it but that being said yeah, like we come from a country where people say that almost like as an, a term of endearment to other people. And I know that sounds so messed up, but yeah. So you come to a completely different culture and then all of a sudden it's so charged. It has so much context. It's like such a bad thing. And of course it doesn't excuse us, but here we are kind of like trying to say, hey, not everyone knows. But so it, rather than no, it's true. attack... Right. Like, and here's the, the point that true. the point that I was trying to make that I had this conversation with Hayden this morning is that a lot of, of uh, Americans haven't traveled outside of America. Like a lot of people just kind of like grow up yeah. here and then and then they never they never go to another country. So they really don't understand cultural differences. And it's, true. And it's where I'm coming from. It's like, you know, you have you ever been to Latin America? Like, do you know uh, the dynamics between white and black people there? Because it's totally different. Like, I would totally go on the street and a black person would refer to me as what's up, Mineira. I'm not black, but they would totally call me that because it, we're the same in my in our eyes. So it's just like removing yourself from the situation you're in and understanding that just people grow up in different environments and and. We're, we're obviously we're all open to understanding each other better, but it it just takes a little bit of time and education. And that's it in, in a in a nice way. So where this story was headed was more recently, more recently. I had another near death experience with a cancel culture where um, I initially decided not to not to make any statements about what was happening, mainly because in my eyes, the topic didn't need any more awareness. And I'm not a political expert. So I didn't think that my opinion counted for anything. It's like, I'm not educated on the topic. I'm not even American. I don't understand what people are going through. Why would I, why would I hop in this bandwagon and pretend like I understand? I don't, right? So we felt like our efforts were, since we were not well-educated in the topic, our efforts were better off raising money for an organization where they're trained 
to do exactly you know what what's right in this situation and so. and actual actions like if if people really feel like the black community is underrepresented in athletics then you know what i'm going to sponsor black athletes to bring awareness to to the talent that that exists right or do people think that uh there's not enough people working black people working in fitness i'm gonna make it a point to hire someone black next time you know for whatever i need so that they're represented in the community like with actions i'm gonna show that i support so anyway that was the first thing i said i said look i just don't feel like like i like it would make any difference i just don't understand it blah 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 and then i got heat for that and then i said look My my uh, point of view is that everyone should be treated equally. I would love for a world where everyone has equal opportunity and and I, you know, and, and this sort of suffering does not exist. And I do believe that, you know, all lives matter, but not all lives matter, like all lives matter versus black lives matter, but more like. I was trying to. Well, you didn't even know that that all lives matter didn't even was a, a thing a, like a, a political stance. You did. Right. Yeah. You didn't know that it was in opposition to to what was going on. Yeah. I had no. no idea. I just was trying to eliminate the dichotomy that exists between white and black people. I just wanted to say, look, we are like, I'm with you. I'm standing on like the same. We're fighting the same fight. That was basically what I wanted to say. And that post got screenshotted, posted on Twitter. I got called all sorts of names a dumbass, uh, an imbecile, a bitch, like all sorts of names, uh, white privilege, <laughs> yeah. not even you, white. You're, uh, I think what the most frustrating part about that is, is that the with count, uh, I can never say it properly. Cancel culture. Drive. Yeah. Cancel culture. Um, people really like to cling on to whatever their first interpretation of what somebody says is. So you can have somebody like Steffi who, who misspeaks. And then she'll go in great detail about how that was just her misspeaking. This is what I really meant, you know, and they'll lay it out in a way that, you know, anyone could understand. And then people are like, nope, sorry. I'm you already st- said it. Sticking with the first thing, you know, and it's like people are not allowed to make mistakes and apologize or and they're not, not allowed to even explain themselves. Because then as soon as you explain yourself, they're, or they're, they're like, why don't you stop trying to defend yourself and educate yourself? And you're just like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. I'm just trying to help in some way. <laughs> and everyone's yelling at me. And I, like, I don't know what the next step is. So I, I don't know uh, from your guys' perspective how you see can- cancel culture. And Good job. <laughs> <nailed> it. Wow. <laughs> um, do you want to go first, Alex? <laughs> sure. So I guess I would like to refer to this post that I actually shared with Steffi, I think like a couple weeks ago. And it's by Jamila Jamil. She's the actress from Real Life. Life. Oh my God, I love her. I love anyway, her. So she, she went ahead and she wrote this post. I'm going to read real quick. It says, the pivotal difference between cancel culture and call out culture. Calling out means pointing out someone's mistake, condemning it if it is harmful to others and demanding someone does better. Canceling means deplatforming someone and calling for their job and position of power to be entirely taken away, often for the foreseeable future. I rarely support cancellation unless the person company has an irrevocable harm or hurts more people than they help or refuses to shift on their dangerous, bigoted views Mm -hmm. or behavior. Mm -hmm. So, yes, this for me, this is like the perfect explanation. It's like, okay, let's assess. Is this was this person aware that they were saying something harmful or that they were making a mistake? 
Is this person accepting that they have made a mistake? Is this person willing to do the work to make some retributions for this mistake? If you're the type of person that you made a mistake, it was pointed out to you and you refuse to change. And in fact, you just emphasize like, I was not wrong. Like you're an idiot or whatever. Fine. And this can be dangerous if people have really big platforms or have a lot of power or things like that. But if you're just a human being, and I mean, in Steffi's case and in my own case, we're foreign, right? Like we didn't grow up in the U.S. So maybe just take a second to understand people's backgrounds before you run off to chop off their head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I completely agree. Also, I think, you know, first off, I do love her. She's so amazing. And I'm so sorry that all that happened to you, Steffi. <laughs> but I actually think that what you said is something that so many people are going through right now. And even though, you know, this does have to do with an issue of cancel culture, you know, I was even talking to my friend the other day where I was like, you know, changing the names of school and like looking at the statues in an area you know, some people are arguing that this is cancel culture becoming too dramatic, but I don't support cancel culture, but I do um, support reevaluating what we're glorifying. And so I think in your example, this was an example of why cancel culture is problematic. But I also think that, you know, we really do need to differentiate that cancel culture or that, you know, is a trend and it's problematic because it's an emotional response instead of trying to understand the heart and the intent, you know what I mean? You are fixated on your emotions and you're missing an opportunity, honestly, for a teachable moment. And so I think that that's something that's important, but also like when you see things changing in modern day America, with like the NASCAR, you know, not doing the Confederate flag and, you know, certain cities like renaming Robert E. Lee's, you know, high school and things like that. That's not cancel culture. That is removing the glorification of, you know, parts of our history that condemned parts, like populations within our society. And so I think that that's something important. And then the other thing I wanted to say, and, you know, it's not even just for you, but it's for the people listening. I know, like, especially being on the receiving end as, you know, a black person or even like, you know, it's Pride Month. And so for the people that are that identify as LGBTQ, like, you know, being on the receiving end of allyship, it looks very different for each person. And, you know, one of the things I try to do is look at impact versus intent. You know, intent has to count in things like this where everyone is actively learning new things every day. You have to look at the posture of the heart and what they're doing and what they're saying. And seeing as I know you, you know what I mean? I know your heart behind the issues. And like, for instance, you didn't know all lives matter existed. And so you're trying to say like, you know, people shouldn't be condemned because of their identities is what you were saying, no matter what their identity is, you know what I mean? And so intent has to, you know, also be considered when you're having these difficult conversations um, in your household, especially because some of these conversations are going to be the younger generation talking to their parents or their grandparents, mm -hmm. and that's very difficult. But then also, you know, the impact does have to have some weight too. And I think what you were saying is so right. Like a lot of these things need to be done at the institutional level. So it has to be changes in hiring. You know what I mean? It needs to be trying to even a playing field by giving a low income person, you know, the same opportunity as a high income person. So that is so important, but also, you know, so much of what changes in history is at 
the people level and at the population level. And so even though sometimes even for myself, you know, I, a lot of times I do yield to my friends that are, you know, on the press side on the best way to do it. But at the same time, it's like, we all have to like, like, let's say we're all a part of one big machine and we have one turning point on the overall mechanism. If we're all not turning in the same direction forward, then we're moving slower and sometimes we're getting stuck. You know what I mean? And so we all have to do what we can in our lane. It may not look like protesting or it may not look like, you know, donating if you don't have that financial, you know, opportunity, but it could be talking to local legislators. It could be having, you know, holding space within whatever you do, whether it's a job place or whether it's like, you know, some, I'm, a Christian and sometimes like, you know, my friends have said, how can I do this in the community group? It's like holding space in your area to, you know, have these conversations. Yes. We all don't know exactly what to say. Like I'm black and talking about race issues feels taboo for me too. You know what I mean? But at the same time, like we are in a very unique time where we're reevaluating and that's what happened when slavery ended. Like some the intent is partially economic, unfortunately in the past, you know what I mean? But like throughout history, we reevaluate the behaviors um, that have become commonplace and we, you know, change direction and we're, we're at another reevaluation period. And this time in this reevaluation period, I do think that it's different because we have an opportunity to shift ideologies but also to shift systems. And so, you know, I totally agree that, you know, there's not really the perfect thing to say, but at the same time, everyone has to say something in this, you know, during this unique time, just because, you know, I don't have access to the same people that, you know, my white friends have access to or my Latin ex friends. And like, even within these communities, I find that some of my friends that are allies are like talking to their community about like problems that they have an allyship that I'm not aware of. You know what I mean? I feel like, oh, well, all my friends within this identity, they seem to get it. You know what I mean? But then they start to talk on their social media about problems internally within their culture and being like awakened. You know what I mean? To like ideologies that are problematic that I didn't even know existed because I haven't received it. And so there is a lane for everyone in this fight. I really think so. And I'm really saying this more to your followers even more than, you know, to you directly. What do you think what do you think makes this social climate in particular the best one we've had for change? I think it's just one of those things like, you know, Alex knows me really well and I just don't believe in coincidences at all. And I just feel like the world winded up right now. And it's like, and it's unfortunate, you know what I mean? You, you also don't want to get to this place. Like Alex and I study public health. And so we're devastated to see the effects of COVID-19 and also to see the trajectory that our country is currently on with outcomes. But at the same time, I do think that, you know, if you're given a position where you have to stay put and you have to stay at home, this should be really a time where everyone should be doing soul searching. Everyone should be evaluating the spaces that they're going back to when this is all over. You know what I mean? And so, unfortunately, George Floyd's death, the video was just so gruesome that I do think that it resonated. And it's not to say that the other videos never resonated with people either. But I think that we were all in a place and in a posture of reflection on what's going on in our own life and, you know, what we want to go back to and, like, what we define as, like, our values and things that, 
I feel like this is almost a call to action on some of the things that we've been sitting on. Like I know for me, when I was in New York, I lived in a studio apartment by myself. And like in New York, the lockdown is really strict. So I was by myself for three months and I'm just thinking and thinking about my values and, you know, my purpose in life and all these deep things. And then I see this and I'm just like, okay, like it's great to, you know, live comfortably and all that. But at the same time, what do I want to be known for? And I want you know, and I really even figured out, like, I want to differentiate myself and my values so that people know me first in my heart, not necessarily for my title. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's something that's very commonplace in our generation. And we even see it in like, movements like climate change. Like last year, we had a huge shift in climate change in the U.S. And it was a movement that we've never seen before. And it's reverberating around the world. You know what I mean? And so I think that there is something in our generation that's ready and that we are going to be the ones that shift the tide and, you know, shift the paradigm for the next generation. I also think that, you know, it's a combination of everyone's working from home. And so, you know, if you want to go and protest, you can protest. And so there's a lot of opportunities. Um, I think that it's um, the other thing I think is that we as a generation, because of social media, we do a lot of our own research and it's so important. And so, we're not just taking things off of face value, what the generation before us is telling us to believe. We're kind of coming to our own conclusions by asking further questions on in our personal time from what we're hearing during the day. And so I actually think a lot of the reason why a lot of things are being renamed and like even like if you go on your social media, like your friends are making like infographic PowerPoints of like history lessons and stuff is because we're doing our own legwork and once, and my Angelou has this quote that when you know better, you do better. You know what I mean? And like, once you have the education, you feel a responsibility to it and you feel like you need to do something to follow up on the new that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that that's really what it is. It's just like a combination of things calling us to action, but also like our generation just has a different heart for these issues and has a different level of autonomy um, that I think we just haven't seen in a long time. Absolutely. I, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about, I mean, in, I don't know if it's a thing, but I called it uh, generational racism. And I feel like it's been dying off, which is a breath of fresh air, both, uh, you know, racism towards the black community, but even for for me, it's anti-Semitism. Like that's that's the type of Mm. of of hate that I've experienced in my life and I do think that it's it's dying off and it it is changing in our generation like we had this conversation as well about how no matter what you like there were there were grandparents of friends of mine back in Venezuela that were like literally used to work for Hitler you know you're not changing that guy's mind ever about who Jewish people are or whether they're worth of life or not right like there's just no way so now that generation's dying off then there's their kids who are our parents maybe they're a little bit more open to the idea of accepting Jewish people or black people or, or LGBTQ people whatever and then they're gonna die off and then it's us and we are totally accepting of almost everything, right? Like tattoos, black people, white people, Hispanic people, uh, uh, transgender people. Like we don't really care. We're, we're a way more um, open and accepting generation. So I do think that on that end, you know, if we continue having, you're right, if we continue having these conversations, educating people and just being more open. And I think these conversations, which make these topics less taboo are, are exactly what we should be, what we should be striving for. It's funny because I think it gets misrepresented uh, as 
like every generation says the generation below it is getting too soft. Like they're getting softer and softer and softer. But I think in a lot of ways, we're just getting more understanding and more accepting. And I've even caught myself looking at like the younger generation being like, ah, these guys are a bunch of wimps, but they're, (laughs) but they're not right. They're just, they're just, they're being born into just a new level of understanding that we haven't been. So I think even having conversations with that generation is, is really beneficial for us. Um, but I did want Agreed. to touch back on, on something that you said. Wait, me too. Yeah. Where, where are you going to go? Uh, education. I was going to go back to George Floyd for a sec. All right, you go and then I'll go. Okay. I did have a question about, uh, George Flo- Floyd and police brutality. Do you think that, um, what happened to George Floyd was symbolic of systemic racism, just kind of like what it means for the country or is um, police brutality on black people actually a problem that that definitely needs to be addressed? Like what's the what's the consensus? there? That's, that's a great question. I would say both. But I would say in regard to the police brutality, specifically within the black community, I do think that it is something that needs to be addressed specifically. And that's something like I was talking to Alice about it, like policing in America, like if you look back at the history of it, like it started within the black community as slave catchers and slave patrols catching escaped slaves. And then when, you know, slavery was abolished and then you go into Jim Crow era, it was law enforcement, you know, making sure that Jim Crow laws stayed in place so that, you know, separate but equal was still a thing. So like making sure that, you know, the black person's not using the white person water fountain or like, you know, what happened with Rosa Parks and things like that. And so that's like throughout history, law enforcement has had a unique position of keeping blacks disenfranchised. With that, and another thing, and I didn't mention this before, is that um, ter- like alt-right groups like the KKK, they were you know, strategically hiding themselves within law enforcement because they realized that that was a unique way in order to strategically get close to the Black community and to hold them in line. And so when you go through history, you see that there is a tense relationship And something that I truly believe is that policy changes law. It doesn't change hearts. And so although I do not think that this is a problem for every single police officer, you know what I mean? And it really is a shame that some people think that it has to be all or none. There is something that is going on at the root of what law enforcement was, you know, made out of specifically within the black community and how they do disproportionate policing in low income areas that happen to be predominantly minority communities or how if you are in an elementary school in a predominantly black school versus predominantly white school, you can do the same misbehavior. But in the white school, the most serious you may get is suspension. But because they have more community police within the black school, you may go to juvenile detention center. And then even within middle school, you can be tried as an adult. And if you look at this, like the stats across all crimes, across all um, across all age groups and across all income levels, it can be the same exact thing, but it's disproportionate towards blacks and it shows that there's a bigger issue within the criminal justice system 
And so that's something that I do think is really important to, you know, pay attention to. But then there's also a problem with policing in general in America and that we don't currently have a system that makes it very easy to hold bad police officers accountable. And so we have policies like qualified immunity that make it almost impossible from the Supreme Court level to charge, no, not just to charge, but to actually convict a police officer, police officer that's doing something wrong. And then also we have things like, for instance, chokeholds are banned, but then um, chokeholds are still going on and we, um, and it's on a state to state basis, what the standard is. Another thing that's huge within policing that needs to be changed is that we don't have a federal database on police misbehavior. And so if you do something wrong in one um, police station, you like there was a record of a man that was in North um, New York that has been to nine different police departments to work. And, you know, it just shows a bigger systemic issue in regards to policing. And the problem is, and this is what I really like try to point out to people is that once you protect these bad apples, you're because this is the term that they use and you don't look at the tree overall, then you are actually endangering everyone that's coming off that tree. So even the good apples, are now in danger. And so it really is a bigger issue. And then as for the George Floyd thing in particular, I think it's just these things have already existed. They're just being reported. And so now we're seeing so many videos and frequency and like even like the police are releasing videos from a year ago and we're seeing how problematic they are with like Elijah. And it's really teaching us to, you know, be like aware that just because it's not being reported doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. For every one reporting, there's probably a thousand that are not going to be released. Sure. I think George Floyd, in very Venezuelan terms, we have a saying that says, la gota que derramo el vaso, like the drop that made the entire glass pour over. I think that's what happened. It was like the tipping point. It was like there was so much tension built in. There was so much anxiety people were starting to recognize these things. And then this was just an example where it caught all of us, you know, with nothing better to do because we're in quarantine. We're just like in this moment where everyone's anxiety is running high. And I think Mm -hmm. people decided enough, Mm -hmm. like we're not going to take it anymore. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obviously tragic, uh, but I think the movement it has generated and the traction is, is really turning into, a really amazing opportunity to improve the current situation of racism in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I agree. For someone like myself, who is the cultural embodiment of privilege, how would you suggest I educate myself? Because there's a lot of us out there and I don't want to end up on the Internet in a chat room <laughs> with a bunch of guys that look like me trying to educate ourselves on these problems, you know, and, and it's great that we have social media and that so much information is out there, but obviously with that comes a lot of misinformation. So uh, how could someone like me sift through both like the good and the bad and how do we determine what is good and accurate information? Yeah, because social media is the, it's the perfect ex- example of confirmation bias, right? Like you just start following people who have your same beliefs and you click on the hashtags that you like, and then you're just in your little bubble of beliefs. Little echo right? chamber, chamber. An echo chamber. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I think first off, something I want to say is that it's important to have conversations 
with diverse people, but it's also important to have conversations sometimes with people that just look like you. And I know it sounds weird, but the reason why is because there are some things that you can talk about with people that are diverse in order to gain perspective. But then there are some things like, for instance, you know, you're saying you're a white male, like within a white male group, you know, you also want to have those conversations to normalize these type of topics, but then also to feel comfortable in order to show where you feel like you fall short and to be able to have those organic free flowing, you know, conversations to try to mutually better each other. You don't want just, you don't want to make yourself be in a space either that it's like only like black people educating you, you know what I mean? You want other people that look like you to educate you as well. And so that's one thing. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that's one thing that I would say, but then the other thing I would say is it is important also to, you know, make sure that the content that you're getting is sometimes from the people that are going through it. It is important to have like the actual, um, representation in historical understanding. Like even for myself, I would say I was doing a lot of studying in urban health and I have never lived in an urban area in Brooklyn. And so part of our work was specifically talking to boots on the ground and they just added context that just did not align with my assumptions. And it, completely change the trajectory of the work that I was doing. And so it just shows how important it is to have, to amplify black voices and to make sure that you are actually gaining the education. But what I would say is in these instances, Instagram is a tool. If you see words or you see content that piques your interest, take that knowledge and then go and do your own research. Look through um, peer reviewed articles, look through academia releasing information on new studies and new findings that are up to date. Unfortunately, what we're learning is that our textbooks when we were growing up are very filtered version of history. And so unfortunately they do, they have the bias. One of my friends said it best. It's like history is like said through the white man's lens. And so a lot of times, you know, what seems like a victory or this person, you know, never told a lie and all that stuff. It's like, trying to glorify the best parts of them. And it's actually a filter, you know what I mean? And so I think that that's really important to think about. And then the other thing I would say is you don't have to like go out of the box in order to get this information. There's things through like podcasts, like, you know, conversations like what you're having with this is the arena that you like for, you know, through um, Netflix and you know, through like books, just find your media platform and then also look within the arena of what you're interested in. If you're interested in fitness, wellness, nutrition, find things in regards to, you know, minority disparities within those things that you're well educated within your arena. Unfortunately, there's so much to learn because the system is so deep that, you know, in the initial, you can't learn everything. You know, I mean, it is an ongoing commitment, but you can within your arena, like find things that are of interest to you so that you become more literate in that, you know what I mean? In your field on these issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the best starting place. And then if you do have time, once you find issues that you're interested in, like for instance, some people are really interested in, you know, black, you know, woman mental health, for instance, then those are the things you can donate to. It doesn't have to be everything for the legal defense fund, even though that's really important. You know what I mean? There's, there's issues within each realm of the system that you can support that align more with what you value in your own life. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Hayden, I love how you um, owned your white privilege. Yeah. Because people people started using it as a as an insult. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it definitely is a it's privilege. It's the reality. I, can, I mean, I can speak from experience growing growing up in a in a you know wealthy white neighborhood. You know, I, I'm ignorant to a lot of what's going on. Even just what you were talking about, like uh, you know, instances of violence or you know things in schools in high school and middle school. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's treated completely different. Like in my community, we could get in a fight in the hallway. In, in schools, you know, and there's supposed to be a zero tolerance policy where you get expelled if something like that happens. They'd be like, ah, you rascals, don't do that again, you know, and we just go back to class, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, I can't speak to the experience of, of, of others, but I imagine that that's not the case in a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of black communities or or communities that are lower, uh, you know, in a, a, on a socio- socioeconomic mm-hmm. level, so. Yeah. I mean, I definitely experienced a lot of privilege my whole life. My in talking about white privilege, that that is something that concerns me because there was a lot of uh, classism back in Venezuela and a lot of hatred between socioeconomic classes, and I hate to feel like a little bit of that is happening here. Mm. You know, like I mean, it's. I think it's all. I think it's a global thing and it would be very naive to assume that there's a country where there's no such thing as like socioeconomic or racial tensions. There's always going to be something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just about understanding these contexts. And in the same way that Hayden was just talking about his own privilege, you have to be cognizant and you have to acknowledge uh, what your biases are. Right. And then work towards maybe, getting to a more neutral point. So. Yeah. I, I think that Western society just does a, a better job than what well, better is a relative term, but does more of a job of, of just like being polite on a, on like a surface level and all the issues still exist, but in a place like Venezuela, you know, especially within the, the Jewish Latin community, you speak your mind and you're straight up about it. And there's like no room for politeness. It's just like everything is very off the cuff. Mm-hmm. It's just a different culture altogether. So it's, you know, in communities like that, I think if there is well, any, because there's anything, less consequences. Like in, in Venezuela, like if you, whatever, sure. you, you're upset at someone, you throw a gas bomb and, <laughs> and, and, you know, whatever. Like there's no consequences for that it's there. complete sure. anarchy. But it's just that... Uh, I think that the the problem with it in Western society is that because we're polite on a surface level, it makes it easier for people to pretend like these issues don't exist. You can be like, oh, look, I have sure. I have black friends and, you know, I do X, Y, Z. And, you know, they, they use that as a justification for certain behaviors. Whereas in, I think in other cultures, it, it doesn't happen as much for that reason. Absolutely. And Alex... I know, like, you've been talking about, like, so much of what's been going on in Venezuela and how it's really a slippery slope, you know, if we're not even careful here with what's going on, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that the situation in Venezuela is so sad because so many people don't know what's happening. And the thing is that the situation has been unstable and at a critical point for so long. And our media is extremely restricted. Um, everything that happens there right now, the government basically took out of the country DirecTV, which was the cable company. So now most people, the only thing they can access are channels from the government. That's all they can watch. And 
you know, all newspapers, all news media are controlled by the government. So then the little information that leaks out is just not enough. I mean, at one point I felt like we had the world observing what was going mm-hmm. on. And now I feel like the attention dissipated because it's like, oh, okay, they're still doing horrible. They're still suffering. They're still, well, whatever. It's been going on for a while. Mm-hmm. And the situation just keeps aggravating. The social injustices keep getting worse. The government keeps getting more and more dictatorial, more oppressive. And I'm just at a point where I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. We, we already reached what people thought was going to be the very bottom of economic collapse. And it's still worsening. And I really don't know when it's going to stop. I mean, it's okay. I don't know how you feel about it, but to yeah. me, as a son, I'm like, this is ridiculous. So it, it's just funny to see how every country has their own struggles. And while some people are, you know, here in the U S are fighting for racial equality, there's literally other people in Yemen who have been undergoing horrible inhumane conditions and then there's people mm-hmm. in Venezuela who literally are undernourished and completely uh, under a completely dictate a complete dictatorship and they're just stuck in the worst economic crises that Latin America has experienced in the history of Latin America and I think um, I think even talking about it within this conversation, can make some people cringe because they think we're trying to take away from what's happening in the States, which is like totally not what we're, what we're trying to say. It's, it's more like, at least when I bring these topics up, it's just to accentuate the fact that, that at least like us coming from Venezuela, we understand oppression. We understand how it feels to, to, not have any sort of power over the conditions of your, of your country or yourself. Um, we understand injustice. We understand discrimination. Um, and, and it's also to bring light to the fact that I think a lot of people in this, in the States have like almost like this complex where only the things that happen in the state matter. And they they fail to recognize that there's an entire world that's that's suffering as well. And it's I don't, not, it's I, not I don't necessarily think it's just the states. I think that it's a natural human thing that you're most interested and concerned with the things that are most relevant to you and, to your situation. and most proximal to you. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I mean, it is a problem. And I think it's a huge problem with the media, too, it, yeah. because the way we treat media, especially in, in this country, is uh, in Canada and all the Western civilization, it is like entertainment. So it's like you're constantly trying to pump out what's the new hot, horrible thing that's happening in the world. Totally. You know, so Venezuela Absolutely. got its 15 minutes of fame and then they were like, okay, now coronavirus, now Black Lives Matter. Now, then that lost a little bit of steam and then they're like, okay, it's coronavirus again. And now it's, you know, what's the next thing? And it's like, okay, they all get some sort of attention, but it's, we just push past them so quickly. It's nothing really gets what it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. But to jump back on Steffi's comment real quick, I, I fully agree. Obviously when I bring up things about Venezuela, I'm definitely not trying to take away any spotlight. I think that we have to get in the mentality that it's not that one problem is more important than another. I think we can all share the spotlight. And I think that since we're all, in this mentality of trying to be more understanding and trying to really educate ourselves, I think that we can hold space for multiple things and we don't dilute our efforts just because we care about more 
more than one thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I can actively care about racism in the U.S. and I can actively care about what's happening in Venezuela and I can actively also care about people who are suffering in Yemen or whichever other situation, right? So, um, so yeah. Yeah, so I think it's also let's change our mentality to being truly caring about everything and knowing that caring about one thing is not going to make us less caring about another one, right? Yeah, absolutely. Totally yeah, and then another reason why I wanted you to say that too was just to point out that um, Martin Luther King has a quote that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so any injustice that we have in the world, it is a slippery slope. And within our nation, we are just as vulnerable to these injustices. And, you know, even when you look at voter suppression in communities of color and things like that, like that is a slippery slope for people losing their democratic rights. And um, so it's something where it's, it's so important to hear about injustices that are happening abroad so that we can be more convicted in why we want to preserve our rights and equity here and bring, you know, injustices to justice. Because when you start to let certain things, you know, slip through the cracks or make excuses or justify some and only pick the causes that you value, that's when you start to get down to the place where, you know, having the biggest humanitarian crises in the world become like, you know, the way of life within the nation. And unfortunately, we are in an environment where so many countries, everyone's dealing with COVID, but everyone, every country has priorities right now. And because of what's going on here in the U.S., we are not able to be the international resource that we're normally able to be. And so that's another thing. It's like, we're losing our opportunity to be that beacon of light until we start to address our own darknesses here, which is so important. And then the other thing that I want to say, because you wanted to mention education, is when you talk about systemic racism, education is a huge way to change the trajectory of your life. And here in the U.S., a huge part of school funding comes from local property taxes. And so in low-income areas, they have a fraction of the money going to schooling than in high-income areas, which already sets them up to have less likelihood for extracurricular activities, for um, additional sports, clubs, resources, test prep if they want to go to higher education, mentorship, um, all those things that can sometimes change, you know what I mean, the rest of your life with education um, in low-income areas, which are predominantly minorities, Blacks, immigrants, um, Latinx, you know, um, so many other um, intersectionalities, they are put at the disadvantage once again in regards to changing the trajectory of your life. And this lack of education, once again, is making it so that the starting place is different. And so when we're tackling this, we have to be looking on all ends, but we also have to be looking across country lines because it really is a slippery slope. Yeah, uh, I'm never going to forget one of the phrases uh, throughout our master's degree that really got to me the most was something that Dr. Daniel Ompad said. Uh, We were in a class and she said, I can tell you more about your life outcomes based on your zip code than any Mm -hmm. other other thing. So isn't that crazy that based on where you live, some people, well, healthcare practitioners can already tell what you're more susceptible for. So, oh, you live in this area means that maybe this is like a mainly Hispanic community where there's low resources, therefore the education system is not the best, therefore you will 
more likely going to drop out of high school and then uh, there's high incidence of drug consumption and this and that. So it's so important to understand that a lot of the things that we perceive as sometimes racial is in reality because it comes from way back and it's been like mm-hmm. systematic redlining, geographical redlining. And also geographical location, a lot of times low income areas are closer to environmental hazards. So like that happened in Flint and like even with asthma and things like that and public housing, having mold spores, lead in their paint, things like that. All those things change your health outcomes based off of income level, which is disproportionately minorities, which then change your COVID outcomes as well. And so it's all so connected. And that's why I really try to encourage you don't look at these as isolated issues, like connect the dots. And you yeah. start to see why this can't just be an individual commitment. This has to be at the population level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's those are really interesting points. I, I have a question. Sorry if you already addressed it, but is redlining still a thing? Like, does it still happen? Very that's a good question. So technically speaking, redlining was the Fair Housing Act of 1968. It was found to be illegal, but the redlining, what they found is although the red lines are technically erased off the map now, and also you can look on the University of Richmond, they have the full database of all the major cities. They did it for 249 cities. So like Atlanta, Chicago, Oakland, California, Berkeley, they all have them. You can look at it online to see. And what you'll notice though, is that those same areas that were red back then, and so they didn't get federal backing, are still the low income and moderate income communities now. So nothing has changed, even though um, it was found to be illegal. And then also, um, the other thing that I would say in regards to that is even though nothing has changed, what they're finding is with gentrification, which is now the modern day issue, because it causes displacement of minority communities, um, with gentrification, almost 64 to 72, I don't remember the exact percentage of the ones that are being gentrified now are all red line areas. And so all those people are now being pushed into a smaller low income space. And so they're competing for resources in a smaller area and losing their local businesses, losing um, their representation in the local government. And so they're actually like erasing their voice and their like cultural identity from the areas. And so it is very important. Like gentrification helps young, affluent, well-educated people moving for educational opportunities, but it moves an entire population of people that um, are now being displaced, sometimes not finding new housing. Um, They're now entering into poverty with rezoning of schools. They're no longer zoned to the same schools. And so they don't have the same educational opportunities employment they don't have that anymore because of businesses being knocked down and then even access to healthy food they call that a food desert they have to travel farther for healthy food now if you've noticed trader joe's and whole foods are not in low income areas and so it's things like that that change your outcomes change health change everything in the trajectory of your life yeah well i mean everything you're saying makes makes total sense and it it's really opened my eyes to the complexity of the situation and the mm-hmm. layering that so many things that i had no idea and i i feel like i'm i'm more confused than i was before this conversation as far as like what the next steps are and how we can how we can truly get the ball rolling and and things moving in the right direction like the economic gap i mean you're an economist hate how do you fix the economic gap ba- uh, the economic ga- gap people the poor getting poorer the rich getting richer like it's tough. even it's a lot of years racism of- aside right like how do we how do we shorten or 
Should we talk about relocation the of resources? Huh? <laughs> should we should we get started on the topic of resource relocation? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel it's, like that's a whole hour long conversation. Yeah, we're coming yeah. on an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. but that's really what it looks like. It's basically even evening the playing field because this is the best example I have. Governor Cuomo the other day he was saying in regards to the property taxes or school funding that in high income areas they spend about thirty six thousand dollars per student a year. And in low-income areas, they spend $13,000 per student a year. That is almost a third of the money. And so imagine like the different trajectory of education that you have when you're getting two, like when you're getting basically a third of the funding versus three times the funding. You know what I mean? And it's really like your geographical location as a child should not change the trajectory of your life that is not dependent on what you're doing it's based off you know exam um circumstances that you're born into and so having you know your school funding be so heavily dependent on that is so ridiculous or having disproportionate amount of community policing in low-income areas you know what i mean and seeing crime rates the thing is like when you are criminalizing people from an earlier age, that means that you are changing their opportunity to get higher education. It means that you're changing their opportunity for new job opportunities too. And so we do need to start to reimagine a lot of the systems that basically affect some of the more basic essential aspects of our life. I had a conversation when I was in London about urban health and minority communities there. And one of the biggest topics we were like not meeting eye to eye on was that violence is not an indicator of safety for the people that are living in a community. And so it's also so important that when you're having these conversations to have people that are representative of the community at the table, it can't just be because you have credentials after your name that you are seen as more valuable in making decisions than someone that actually has lived there their entire life because their voices change your perspectives. And that is really what's so important. Like, just because, you know, you have a PhD or I have an MPH, I do not know more about your community than you do. And what we find is sometimes we think that this is the solution for this community and you bring this new service in and it doesn't align with the cultural beliefs or the values of the community. And so it ends up falling flat. And so that's another aspect that I think we need is more representation at the community level in um, decision making. And the reason why I said the safety and violence one is because a lot of times people think that high violence rates means that the community is not safe. But what we find is that locals, they still feel like they can walk up and down their community and they know everyone. And from the outside looking in, it looks more dangerous. But for them, you know, that is something that they feel does not, they don't feel alarmed or triggered by. And so it's really important to have their voices because it can influence the policy that you're making. Yeah. Um. yeah. You made a great point about the tax dollars in schools. And, and I think in addition to that too, uh, just the, the private investment and involvement that people do outside of just the tax money that's collected is is a huge thing that not a lot of people talk about. Again, just to, just to speak based off my own experience, when I was in high school, we had one family that donated uh, a scoreboard to the football field that was a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, and that's just wow. one family. And that's for an extracurricular activity because the school was so set. They're like, oh, we don't need new books. We don't need 
you know, renovations. We don't need this. It's like, how, how can I pitch in? Oh, how about a couple hundred thousand dollars school uh, scoreboard for the football field? You know, which it sounds ridiculous because that money I'm sure could go a long way in making actual real differences in, in, you know, communities that, that, that need that funding. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's, uh, that's a whole other area. That's, yeah. uh, that's pretty wild. Um, Hey, I want to be mindful of your time. I know Alex, you have a meeting in five minutes. We're going to, we're going to definitely have to do part two to talk about COVID because I think it'd be, it'd be really, really interesting for our listeners. So let's find a time maybe next week or the week after we can. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you so much for having us and sharing your platform for this very important topic. And I think that this is the right thing. Just open your platform to people that can actually go ahead and talk to you about this topic and educate and to everyone listening. We hope that you learn a thing or two today. Yeah. yeah. Thank you guys so much for your yeah. time. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. And I just think that this is such a good example of not just making space, which is temporary, but it's holding space and using whatever lane you have in order to, you know, further these conversations. So thank you so much for using your platform Absolutely. and for having this like deep conversation. It was very layered and I'm appreciative Absolutely. of the opportunity. Absolutely. You guys are thank amazing. You. Hey, where can people find you if you want to be found? If not, then <laughs> give, give us a fake address. <laughs> I feel like we did a post on Instagram. Janae has an amazing blog. I mean, I know she's too humble to say, but honestly, everyone should read her. Go ahead and tell them, Janae. Oh, thank you. Um, I have a blog called Living in Gray. So that's G-A-R-A-Y. And I basically talk about issues that are going on in the world, in our country, and why it's not always black and white. And how these are really layered things that we have to look at different um, direct directions and sometimes they don't end in a resolution but um, I try to talk about things that are sometimes controversial but are very important and I try to give a lot of resources for people to take their next steps and then if you do follow me on Instagram sometimes I do COVID updates and things um, in regards to public health and race relations and so that's at Janae Moody so J-A-N-A-E-M-O-O-D-I-E so thank you you can go Alex Perfect. I appreciate you yeah, my Instagram is just at Alexandra Riaga with two R's. And yeah, I just uh, often talk about the situation in Venezuela and other public health issues that interest me. But it's, I mean, I don't have a blog or anything, but uh, I also have a, a podcast with NYU. If you want to check it out, it's IMGPH. And we have conversations about everything public health related for those that want to know more. Amazing. Caesar, make sure to link all of that down there. You guys are brilliant. Uh, you're amazing i'm so glad that i had the opportunity to meet you jenna at least online hopefully i'll meet you in person one day and uh, yes, we'll, be in touch Florida. we'll be in touch for part two thank you guys right. thank you guys bye all nice meeting you